Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, a wonderful prayer at the end and doxology at the end of the first half of Ephesians. The end of the so-called doctrinal section and the beginning of the so-called ethical section. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray once more. Thus, God, we come before your word and we need you to speak and to move and to act. Thus, we ask that you would Look favorably upon us and teach us, build us up through your grace, which we desperately need every moment of every day. In Christ's name, amen. We have, it shouldn't surprise you with the makeup of our family, we have a couple of these scripture song CDs that we play in the car, and they're just kind of quick hitter songs. And there's 55 or 60 of them per disc. And there's one song on one of these that goes like this. God says it, I believe it, tis all that faith demands. Though heaven and earth shall pass away, his word still stands. And that's something of the principle that the Heidelberg Catechism gets at there in in Lord's Day 8. That why do we believe the doctrine of the Trinity. Why do we accept it, embrace it, believe it, and confess it? Well, very simply, because God has shown us in His Word that He is a triune God. And that answer gives to us a a, a lot that we need to recognize, that when we're dealing with the doctrine of of the Trinity, we are in, in deep theological waters, aren't we? And we are coming up to a doctrine that is so glorious and so wonderful and so beyond our own ability to to fully envelop that it's it's one of those things that as you are excited to to study it, and we've got some some seminary students and even some uh, theologians, lay theologians amongst us, it's something that gets you very excited when you start reading about the Trinity and to think about the, the, the glorious truths revealed therein. And yet the the, the Trinity is so wonderful, the doctrine of the Trinity and studying it is so wonderful because the more you learn, the more you begin to grasp of the the, the infinite nature of God and his incomprehensibility, which also 
pulls us forward to greater and truer and deeper worship of him. But very simply, very basically, why do we believe it? Because God has revealed himself to be such, a God who is one in essence and one God and yet existing in three persons, subsisting in these three co-equal, co-eternal persons of the Godhead. And as you survey Scripture, there are cults and splinter groups off of Christianity and also false religions out there that uh, say various things uh, against the Trinity, against the doctrine of the Trinity. But as you go to the Word of God, you find it that it is so incontrovertible. If you take all of the weight, all of the, the evidence of Scripture, it's so incontrovertible that uh, pastoral and theology great John Owen said that if we fail to confess and profess the Trinity and understand that this is how God has revealed himself, we will fail to understand anything that's put to human language. It is so clear in God's word, and he has revealed himself in that way. John Owen said this, and in his mind would have been places like Psalm 46, as it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. Psalm 46, verse, Psalm 40, sorry, Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And of course, that is quoted in Hebrews 1 and attributed to Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Son of God, as the author of the Hebrews is telling us why the Son of God is so much more glorious than the angels, why heavenly beings are not equal to the Son, very clearly walking us through, carefully showing us the deity of Jesus Christ. Various times in the life of Jesus where he claims deity for himself. And when you find that uh, a phrase like, and the Jews picked up stones to stone him, you know that he has claimed deity for him, for himself. When he claims that he has the authority to forgive sin, and who can forgive sins but God alone. Likewise, the deity of the Holy Spirit, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, is put on clearly on display in so many places. But a place like Job 33, the Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Who is the one who creates? Well, God creates here we read that it's the Spirit of God that is especially active in, in creation. In Acts chapter 5, and Ananias and Sapphira come before the apostle Peter, and uh, uh, as they lie to him about this land that they have sold and the money that they have given, Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have lied to God. And there we find one of the clearest affirmations of the divinity of the Holy Spirit we find it in other places that God dwells in his temple and God's spirit dwells in you. We are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in us. How do we know we're the temple of God? Because the spirit of God dwells in us. And you could go on and on. And you could preach many hundreds of sermons looking at various aspects of, of the Trinity and its truth and why we confess it. But tonight like to, to think in a particular way as it relates to this. When you ask the question, what good does it do to believe the Trinity? Is it practical? Is it helpful? Does it come into my life and change me? Does it change the way I live from day to day? I, I, I suspect that many Christians would probably answer, 
I don't know how I, how I could answer that. It seems so theoretical. It seems when we're talking about these kind of metaphysical, theological truths, I don't really know how it gets into my daily life. We struggle often to move beyond we believe this because God has revealed it, which is true, to saying that the Trinity is a profoundly practical doctrine, and it is. And that is what we have right here in this passage in Ephesians. You see the Apostle Paul laboring in his prayers and in his writing and in his pastoring of uh, the saints in Ephesus, that it, laboring in his prayers, praying to the triune God, and employing all that he knows about the glorious triune God, that this God would be saving and strengthening and sustaining the church there in Ephesus. We learn that without the Trinity, with, without all three persons of the Godhead actively involved in our lives, we would fail to commune with God. We would fail to grow in our knowledge and love and devotion. And that would then, of course, have a, a negative effect on how we worship God, which is the most important thing that we can do as human beings, to worship God. And whom do we worship? The triune Lord. The triune Lord. So our theme tonight, just for the next few minutes, as we have this blessed privilege to gather around the Word of God, is this. The triune, the triune God's work in us is so all-encompassing. It involves so much everything about our spiritual lives. He is the one who saves and strengthens and sustains us. Since that is true, all we can do is cheerfully submit to Him. Cheerfully submit to this triune God, this triune Lord, because he is the one and he is the one alone who saves, who strengthens, and who sustains us. Let's consider these things together. First, praying to the triune Lord. Notice how all three persons of the Godhead figure so seamlessly in this prayer. And that tells us something, uh, first, about the doctrine that we're studying tonight and also about how we ought to pray this prayer is, uh, seems to be primarily directed to the Father, but it's in the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the way that we pray as Trinitarian Christians ordinarily. We also can pray, as you hear me, I encourage you often, you can pray directly to Jesus Christ. You can and, and may and should and ought to pray directly to the Holy Spirit as well. The basic pattern of prayer that we are taught is directed to the Father in the Son and by the power of, of the Holy Spirit. But notice how all three persons of the Godhead figure so seamlessly into this prayer. All of what we are talking about is in Christ or Christ in us. All things happen by the power, the agency of, of the Holy Spirit who makes, present Christ, who makes Christ present to us and brings us all of the graces of our loving God. You might have to ask the question, if someone were to be looking at this passage and thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity and whether or not it is true, you would ask, how can Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, how can he flow so freely between the three persons of, of the Godhead in a prayer like this if one is divine and two are not? If one is truly God and, and two are not, or two are and one is not? Very clearly, Paul prays to a triune God and a triune Lord. And thus, 
We begin just by noticing that. We notice also that all that Paul says here is sort of, it's the beginning to the end of the Christian life, isn't it? This prayer covers everything that we would need to live for the glory of God. Paul is praying for the Christian life of the Ephesians. That this God would build them up, that he would sustain them, that he would uh, cause them to grow in knowledge and love and devotion. In other words, there's nothing missing here from this prayer if you want to be equipped to live as a Christian. And what do you notice? There's an absence of the mediation of anything or anyone else. Notice that this prayer is not directed to anyone else, not to saints or to Mary. Jesus brings us to God, and if he does not, he is not a true and complete Savior. The Holy Spirit applies Christ to us and builds us up in the faith and equips us to live as Christians in this world fully and truly and really. Otherwise, if God does not do that on his own, we have to go somewhere else, don't we? And of course, that is the furthest thing from Paul's mind. He is exactly where he needs to be, praying exactly to the one to whom he must pray, not only for himself, that's part of the glory of this too, that he's praying to God on behalf of these Christians in another part of the world, far removed from Paul. And Paul perhaps doesn't know whether or not he'll see them again, but yet can still be engaged in their Christian life in this way. We find that Christ is a sufficient Savior to bring us to God, and this triune Lord is all we need. It begins with God strengthening us, and it ends with what? Glorifying God. If you want a prayer that will help you to glorify God, you need to go no further. And for the time remaining, we'll focus on, on the emphases of this text, that the triune Lord saves and strengthens and sustains. The overarching theme of this prayer is that it is God who saves by his sovereign grace. And really, that's the theme of Ephesians, isn't it? God saves by his sovereign grace. God being rich in mercy, when we were dead in our transgressions, right, and, and we're spiritually dead, there's nothing we can do to resurrect ourselves. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This God is the one who saves. And notice how in this Trinitarian prayer, the work of redemption is so clearly at the forefront, isn't it? The God who saves, the God who finishes his work in us, the God who is bringing us unto the last day. That's really what Paul is doing. And you see we're thankful, of course, to, to share the doctrine of the Trinity with other wings of, of Christendom, other Christian traditions. But as we think about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relative to this text and so many others, it is so clearly interwoven with the glories of redemption and redemption conceived of as God's sovereign grace. The God who, from all eternity, has purposed to save his people in Jesus Christ. The God who from all eternity has decreed every aspect of your life and your salvation, all that you would need, he has decreed it from and before the foundations of the world, hasn't he? 
very reformed emphasis, but as you go to this text, you say, how could it be otherwise? The Trinity is so often not just a a way that we affirm who God is in His being, in His essence, but it is a way to understand how He saves. All three persons of the Godhead bound up with our salvation. Our salvation is wrought from the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Our salvation is accomplished by Christ. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our salvation uh, begins with being regenerated, being made alive by the power of the Spirit in the new birth. 1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the, of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Our salvation is all of grace, for by grace you have been saved. And then the triune Lord not only saves, but strengthens and sustains. Paul prays on behalf of these believers, and he says, I pray that you would be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being. All of the life of our soul can only be given health through the God who made us. John Calvin says this, the the increase and the commencement of everything good in us comes from the Holy Spirit. There is nothing spiritually good that is wrought in us or begun in us or flows forth from us that does not have its source in the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is not Paul saying, Ephesians, you strengthen yourselves a little bit and then I'm going to pray that God is going to strengthen you a little bit more and you kind of meet somewhere in the middle. He's saying, cast yourself in full reliance upon this triune God who strengthens you. Please give yourself in reliance and faith to this God who works on your behalf. We read it in Psalm 138. The day I called you answered me, my strength of soul you increased. Notice here, Paul or David is praying, isn't he, in Psalm 138. He's praying, and so he's doing something. And so we can be tempted to say, okay, so if I if I engage in this duty of prayer, this spiritual practice of prayer, then then uh, I will in a sense, strengthen myself through what I receive from God because I'm the one who prayed. And that's not the proper way to think of it, is it? We pray and God strengthens us in our prayer. So David receives strength in his duty but not from his duty. As he prays, God strengthens him, but it's not David strengthening Himself, And that's the attitude that we need to have in everything that God gives to us. As we make use of the church, the preached word, prayer, all of these things through which God uh, sanctifies his people, the sacraments, we are faithful to them because we believe this is where God ordinarily strengthens his people. This is where God ordinarily builds up his people. And so showing yourself to be in reliance upon the triune Lord who saves and strengthens and sustains is to give yourself to these things. Prayer, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints that we have uh, together. Whom have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may, f- may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. See, that's the, the, the attitude that we need to have. God is the strength of my heart. Psalm 28, 8, the Lord is the strength of his people. We need uh, 
to realize these things. So the Spirit strengthens and then Christ dwells. The, the Spirit strengthening and then Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Now what is, what's the, the emphasis here or what's the reason that Paul is speaking about Christ dwelling in us? Well, it's in Christ, of course, that we are sanctified. In Christ being in us that we are sanctified. We, we live lives of obedience and devotion through Christ's indwelling presence by the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is Paul basically saying or praying for a life of God-glorifying, faith-filled obedience. He prays that they would be rooted and grounded in love, and and you see those two illustrations, don't you? Agricultural and architectural. Rooted like a tree, uh, grounded like a a strong building, or a, a brick home that remains firm and steadfast in the wind. Going back to Calvin, he says this, The meaning of this is that our roots ought to be so deeply planted and our foundation so firmly laid in love, that is the love of Christ, that nothing will be able to shake us. Are you firmly planted in the love of Christ? Are you firmly fixed, having a clear perception of what Jesus Christ has done for you? such that nothing will shake you off your Christian profession. If you're rooted and grounded in those things, if temptation comes your way, if trial comes your way, what will you do? You'll be like a strong tree in the wind, knowing that God holds you fast. Then he speaks of being strengthened to comprehend. And and once again, we we find the the idea of strengthening. Where's your strength coming from? Yourself? No, it's coming from God. And strengthened to comprehend the love of Christ. It has these these categories of dimension, breadth and length and, and height and depth. Really the dimension of a building. And if you go to the book of Ezekiel, you'll find all four of these terms uh, used quite often in relation to the, the measurements and all of that of Ezekiel's vision of the temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. What we are encouraged to, to be like here is like a builder who knows his building inside and out. Right? It's, it's his project and he knows every corner of that building and he knows if something is about to go wrong and he keeps his eye on the entire project as it's being uh, finished, as the, the building is being brought up. And Paul is saying, I want you to be like that with the love of Christ. I want you to contemplate it. I want you to think about it all of the time. I want your minds to be fixed on it. We live in a world where attention is a hugely valuable thing. You wonder how there's all of this free content on the internet. Well, it's driven, of course, by revenues created through advertisements. People say, well, if we can get people to our website and looking at this page, there's going to be all these ads and then people are going to want to advertise on our website. Never forget that your attention is a hugely valuable thing. And God wants your attention on Jesus Christ. He wants your attention on the redemption finished for you by the Son of God. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to contemplate it. He wants you to grow in your appreciation day by day. 
Then he prays that they would know something that goes beyond knowledge, doesn't he? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If you think about it, this triune God saves and strengthens and sustains you. And you think about who he is in his person, in his being, and what he has done for you. What will you do? You will worship because at some point you get to, you get to a place where you say, I, I am merely scratching the surface of the glories of what this glorious God does for me. And even to think about who he is and what he's done. The eternal Lord has revealed himself to us. That's, there's mystery there, isn't he? This Lord exists eternally in three persons and yet is one God. There's mystery there. We affirm it, but there's mystery. The second person of the Trinity became man. There is mystery as well. And then that this glorious triune eternal Lord shows his unending love for you in that Son. The eternal Son of God loves you personally and atones for your sin and has saved you and reconciled you to God and has bought you a place in the kingdom and continues to intercede for you even now at the right hand of the Father so that you will not lose your standing in grace. There is mystery upon mystery upon mystery. And you will never touch, you will never plumb, come close to plumbing the depths of that mystery, but you will worship. And when you know that, you know that which goes beyond knowledge, that you will never fully know, and so you worship. Paul's hope is that, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God, that this triune Lord would, would uh, encapsulate all of who you are. And as we talked about this morning, we would die to self. And as we die to self, that this God would be made known in us, that his power and his strength and his grace is what is present and active in our lives. So you are not complete in yourself. And no matter how much self-discovery you go through, you are never going to be complete in yourself. You need to be filled with the God who made you. You need to be filled up with all of the fullness of God. See, if you are full of yourself, and there are many people in this world who are filled with themselves, and even as Christians, we struggle. We live days where we feel like we're full of ourselves, don't we? If you're full of yourself, you're left ultimately with emptiness. But if you empty yourself, you can be filled with God. And that's the call of this passage to empty yourself in reliance upon this, true, this triune Lord, to empty yourself and to cheerfully surrender to him. And as you surrender to him, God's glory increases, doesn't it? To him be the glory in the church. How is he glorified in the church? He's glorified in a church of people. Thank you, kids, for reminding us that the people are the church this morning. He's glorified in a church of people who are cheerfully surrendered to him and to acknowledge day by day and hour by hour and minute by minute that he is the one who builds them up. He is the one who saves and strengthens and sustains. He wants a reliant people who from the heart resign themselves to him, not only in his will for their lives, which we must do, but in the fact that he is the one who is our strength. And we fill our lives with these kinds of prayers, that we would be strengthened to know that which goes beyond knowledge, to comprehend the love of Christ, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, that we would explore it more and more and, and, and come to know and appreciate and love this God who saves us. 
This doxology sums it up perfectly, doesn't it? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Because we can't. Because I can't. I cannot do, uh, I can't even match what I think of. There's a lot of things I can think and imagine that I'm not able to do. But God can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So thus to him be the glory in the church. And the people who are cheerfully submissive to him and reliant upon him and, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.